everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Roots, a Jazz Impressions podcast. My name's Ollie. My name's Dan. And together we run jazzimpressions.co.uk, a music blog designed as a game of musical ping pong where we explore musical connections one track at a time. Um, on this podcast, uh, we both choose a track and then we each map a route of musical connections between those two tracks and providing us an opportunity to talk about the music we enjoy um, and uh, yeah, some of the tracks we love and want to share with others. So Dan, what track have you picked this week? I've picked Mosaic by Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. What about you, Ollie? I picked uh, Nocturnal by Bobby Hutchison. Seeing as I went first last week, do you want to go first this week? I will. Thank you, Ollie. Cool. I'm going to start with your selection, which is Nocturnal by Bobby Hutchison, from his album Patterns, released on Blue Note, uh, recorded in 1968, not released until 1980. Chambers has a lot in common with uh, Bouquet, the track from Happenings, mm. Bobby Hutchison album, uh, which you wrote about on the blog, in that it's got that Eric Satie esque triplet effect. Mm. Um, it's almost bizarre that it didn't come out until 1980 because it sounds so much like Triad, the Jefferson Airplane song based uh, on the David Crosby track. Yeah, yeah. Which it's interesting. also came out in yeah. 1968, Crown of Creation, the Jefferson Airplane album. It sounds like they heard that song. It feels it like it. I mean, I think, I think that's with, with Bobby Hutchison. I think all, his, all of his albums, or a lot of his albums anyway, always have that one ballad on yeah. them that is, like you were saying, kind of Sati-influenced. And they often have, I find with Bobby Hutchison, there's a sort of darkness... A mysterious feeling to a lot of his ballads but they also have a kind of uplifting quality and a kind of serenity and a deep sense of calm and I find it with that on the one side you've got something that is very moody and uh, quite mysterious and not necessarily threatening but it's got that darker feel but also it feels like it's lifted possibly by um, the the flute from James Spaulding but I think it's interesting as well that it's the final it's the final track on the album and so I mean, it's really the focus of the track is the interplay between Hutchison on vibes, and he's a perfect complement to James Spaulding, um, who's really centre stage on the track, rounding out the album. The sound of the vibes with the piano is also really well balanced and blended. Definitely. This is something that Hutchison was brilliant at. Mm. He's got such a shimmering tone, and everything just works in harmony on that track. It's interesting in the liner notes, uh, Michael uh, Kaskuna, he, uh, he mentions, he talks about Hutchison's approach to vibes, um, saying it's pianistic in the sense of melody and harmony and percussive in rhythmic attack and placement. And I think you get that pianistic quality of Hutchison on that final track there. 
Absolutely. as opposed to the you know the, the the stuff you hear for example like last week when we heard uh, McCoy Tyner's Time for Tyner you hear Bobby Hutchison on that but playing a lot more percussively um, on that album um, and there's tracks on there where you really hear him doing these crazy runs and things like that whereas this is the other very kind of almost zen side of Hutchison which is why he's such a great player it's interesting as well like you mentioned because obviously this this track um, is composed by Joe Chambers and you see through that run, I think it was in the 60s when uh, Hutchison was bringing out some of these r really classic albums early on in his career as leader. I think out of 10 of the albums in the 60s that he recorded for Blue Note, uh, Joe Chambers makes an appearance on all of them in some capacity, usually as a drummer, but also as a composer and takes a heavy, um, a heavy compositional role in a lot of, thing in a lot of uh, the tracks that you see on Hutchison albums. I mean, he's incredibly talented as a composer and a really interesting, uh, almost, well, obviously this is quite simple, but com musically complex and interesting compositions. Um, and he's kind of almost like they're kind of partners in crime throughout the 60s. You don't get Hutchison without a heavy dose of Joe, Joe Chambers as well. Brings me on to my next selection, mm. which is a sideways step on the same album. There's a track by James Spaulding. It's called A Time To Go. another ballad on the album but has a has a similar atmosphere to it to nocturnal yeah amazing flute playing by james spaulding who also plays the saxophone and not on that track he's still alive he's 84 and composed that track as a tribute to martin luther king king was assassinated three weeks later oh so he composed it before king was assassinated yeah stanley yeah. cowell on piano with a beautiful solo yeah and you've also got great brushwork from joe chambers and reggie workman on bass i mean stanley cowell another fantastic um musician amazing pianist also a fantastic composer as well and it's interesting this album when you look at the compositional credits um you've got contributions from cowell and chambers and spaulding as well interestingly and uh, i don't think there's any tracks composed by hutchson on this one um, but yeah, fantastic track, really, really nice. And it just goes to show what a fantastic session this was. I mean, that's only two tracks out of seven. And the um, patterns are work is very reminiscent of the Pete LaRocca Basra oh, yeah. cover. Of course, yeah, I was thinking that actually. I was, I was wondering where I recognised it from, but yeah, it's like Basra, isn't it? It's very evocative of the music, even though it's obviously, you know, patterns and you're going to put a pattern on the front cover. The type of pattern that black and white pattern is, it, it feels very evocative of the, the music. Yeah. Like Hutchison's music has this sort of, I don't want to say, it's, 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 not, it's not psychedelic as such. It, it's flowing. Flowing, but also very natural sounding. Yeah. Like when you listen to those ballads like um, A Time to Go and Nocturnal, 
it, for me, it feels kind of like twilight. It feels like being in the middle of a, a forest, you know, and the lights going down or the lights just coming through the trees and there's a kind of sense of, you know, this kind of dark atmosphere, night creeping in, but, you know, all the day coming to an end, but also, and it's got this kind of mysterious quality to it. And I feel that that artwork is very evocative of that. Definitely. Um, also feels a kind of nod to maybe the more, I, I mean, I don't know where that pattern's from, but it wouldn't be out of place on maybe like, um, maybe like an African shawl or something like that. And so you wonder whether it's a nod to the kind of the origins of a lot of, you know, this music, and especially in the, in the late 60s with the civil rights movement. You know, you had a lot of these jazz musicians, especially people like Hutchison, Joe Chambers, uh, they went on to release now um, another fantastic Hutchison album, which is a lot more politically orientated with vocals um, and very much rooted in the civil rights struggle. We've written about uh, Sorcerer, the Jack Jonette album, which features the Reverend King suite. Joe Henderson's Power to the People. Uh, we insist Freedom Now suite by yeah. Max Roach, which we also wrote about. Members Don't Get Weary. But well. my next track is by a different drummer. Mm -hmm. but is also a civil rights track. It's The Freedom Rider by Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers on the Blue Note album of the same name, recorded in 1961, released in 1964. Jazz Messengers, just a drum solo, which is the title track of the album, The Freedom Rider, his tribute to the Freedom Riders, who were civil rights activists, who would ride interstate buses in the South to protest the enforced segregation of buses, which was unconstitutional. And how do you do a protest song that's just a drum solo? Well, I think Blakey shows you there with the pure, unbridled, primal energy of protest only he could really make such a statement mm. he's just a powerhouse it's amazing the momentum of that track yeah i'd never heard this track before but it's incredible i was waiting for the rest of the band to come in and then you realize about kind of four minutes in you go oh this is just gonna be a drum solo yeah they're all having a cigarette break. it's kind of it's kind of like the um i mean obviously th this has more I think this has more energy like you were saying when you know what it's referring to it, it changes the context of the track mm -hmm. but i was i was going to say it'd be maybe a bit flippant to call it the the moby dick of jazz it's like <laughs> you know a bit like if you're familiar with led zeppelin's uh track moby dick which just starts with just a ridiculously long drum solo from john bonham it, yeah. <laughs> it feels a similar kind of thing or you can towed by cream yeah yeah i was thinking this actually interesting listening to this track i was thinking of ginger baker and you can see how much of an inspiration he was on uh, Ginger Baker definitely but yeah that was that was a wicked track though it's just the, the energy he manages to kind of keep going on what I love particularly about that track is also you can hear him in the background you can hear all these kind of like grunts and outbursts from, from Blakey as he plays that's a great yeah. thing about Jazz Messages records is you can always hear Blakey spurring on the rest of the band yeah. when he gets excited 
but yeah, I mean, great, great selection. I love the connection with uh, Time to Go, the civil rights connection there. So yeah, interesting, interesting take on that one. That's the lineup of the Jazz Messengers with Lee Morgan and Wayne Shorter, mm. Bobby Timmons and Jamie Merritt, who you can't hear on that track, obviously. No. <laughs> the uh... you could hear them, but they were really quiet in the background, <laughs> just soloing, like you know. But... The highest solo ever recorded by Wayne Shorter. <laughs> Supersonic. Art Blakey ran the Jazz Messengers from the 50s through the 80s mm. with different lineups. He kept refreshing his band with young musicians. Yeah. As far back as the Birdland recordings in 1954, uh, before they were even called the Jazz Messengers, he says, I love playing with young musicians. It keeps the mind active. And when these lot get too old, I'm going to get some new ones. Yeah. And he did. He kept getting younger players mm. all the way through his career till he died in 1990. I think that's interesting. You know, you see that in a way today. You you look at artists that are still playing now. You know, these greats from that era, and there's not many of them. But you look at people like Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter. You know, these guys that were still performing. Um, and when we went and saw Herbie a couple of years ago, um, it's all a younger band mostly. Um, and it's interesting, you know, in order to stay relevant, it's being able to embrace the new vanguard as such, you know, the new generation of musicians. And it's great when you get that collaboration between those two generations, because they realise, the older generation realise that they don't know everything. They've got something new to learn from that new generation. You know, one thing that comes to mind was that Gary Bart's Maisha record. Um, we were talking about a couple that came out, what was it, last year? Yeah. Um, the live sessions, again, the, the collaboration between the two two groups and again it's great to hear the new generation collabing with the old guard and Miles Davis is the best demonstration of this swapping the first great quintet for the young band that has Herbie Hancock Tony Williams and again Wayne Shorter crops up again yeah because he knew that the way forward for his music was to surround himself with the next generation of musicians and because the Jazz Messengers was constantly being refreshed in this way it meant that just when you think Art Blakey's got the best musicians around he replaces them with people who are somehow better I mean it's all subjective but when you look at him starting out with Clifford Brown and Lou Donaldson you think where do you go from there then he gets Donald Byrd and Hank Mobley <laughs> then Lee Morgan and Benny Golson then Freddie Hubbard and Wayne Shorter Yeah. and in the space of 10 years he's had all the greats getting progressively greater yeah. in his group. I think a lot of that was down to his talent as a band, as a leader. It was kind of like the Jazz Messengers feels like kind of like um, an exclusive kind of school, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, like you know, you, and you do see jazz um, kind of initiatives and schools where under the tutelage of a great player, you'll get all these players coming out who are really talented you know they already have latent talent that allows them to develop and Blakey's jazz messages felt like that Miles was a little more exclusive you know he'd have to bring you into the fold there but the amount of talented musicians that came out of the jazz messages is incredible and it's testament to you know his 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 talent as a band leader and being able to craft that new generation remaining open to to new players and new talent and only a few months later he records Mosaic which is the last step in the journey and only three members of the group are the same, including Blakey. And he's expanded the front line to also include a trombone. So you've got Curtis Fuller, Jamie Merritt, Cedar Walton, 
Wayne Shorter and Freddie Hubbard on the Blue Note album Mosaic, uh, recorded in 1961, released in 1962, and this is the title track. That's crazy. We're both sat <laughs> with our mouths open. That's insane. That's that's incredible. It's the track. fastest thing in the world. I mean, it's probably not the fastest thing in the world, but it's <laughs> it's up there. I mean, it's it's insane. Just the the the, the way like Blakey plays drums. He plays so hard, but at the same with such swing and such conviction. It's like it's just it's insane. Like it's just an incredible drummer and those complex grooves as well. You know, it's interestingly as well. It's the it's the same that same groove as um, the Freedom Rider. Yeah, he loves that Latin. Yeah, ding 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 that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, riding the bell on the on the ride and stuff like that. But it's insane. It's it's absolutely incredible drumming. Um, incredible track. And I mean the the solo from Wayne Shorter as well. Yes. that's really stand out as well. All this performance is incredible. Yeah, Freddie Hubbard is twenty three at the time. Yeah, it's just insane. And then uh, Cedar Walton composed the track. So he had replaced Bobby Timmons and it's such a different sound. I love Bobby Timmons. He had the kind of soul groove. He composed Moanin', which is probably the most famous. Oh, right. Art Blakey joint. Yeah. But I think if you're going to choose one Art Blakey and Jazz Messengers album as a kind of demonstration of what they could do, Mosaic is as good a place to start as any. I mean, they've got so many. Yeah. But it settles down after that track. Thank God. Yeah. You could not keep up that much energy for 40 minutes. Yeah, I it mean... It gets into more of a swinging kind of classic groove after that. Yeah. But what a way to not open an album. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's incredible. I love all the breaks in it as well. It keeps stopping and then cutting back in really quickly. Yeah. It's so effective. The end of the bar and then it stops and then... And then it just stops and then everyone <laughs> comes back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's insane. It's, for me, it's funny listening to that. I mean, it really reminds me of um, Horace Silver as well. Yeah. It's got that, that vibe on, on Horace Silver records. There's always that one track, which is that driving, quintessential kind of um, 60s blue note, hard bop anthem. Uh, heavy on kind of you know, piano and the drummer's going crazy. I mean, you get tracks like by Horace Silver, like The Natives Are Restless Tonight, off Song For My Father, um, Nutville, um, off um, Cape Verde and Blues. The opening theme in it almost sounds a bit kind of Asian, um, yeah. Eastern inspired. Um, and it feels a bit like Horace Silver's um, uh, Tokyo Blues, mm. like some of the compositions on there, almost using those those cliched um, Eastern themes, like yeah. dun, 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 kind of thing, but quite tastefully flipped into, uh, yeah. into the composition. So they don't stand out as being overly cliche, but it's got a little nod to that. It's interesting yeah. you mentioned Horace Silver because he was a, an original jazz messenger. Yeah. And the group was originally co-led, I think, by... I think it was co-led. I think they co-founded and they, co it. And... They split off and each led the best hard bop groups. 
at the time, basically. Maybe throw in um, the Max Roach, Clifford Brown uh, group as well. But yeah, great pick, man. Um, I mean, Mosaic, yeah, what a great track. And I've, like I was saying to you, I've got to really go and uh, catch up on some Art Blakey stuff. So yeah, I suppose um, I should share my route now. Fortunately, um, we haven't overlapped too much, which is good. Cool. Um, so yeah, my, my route is very much like yours, um, very Blue Note centric. Funny, funny that. <laughs> um, so yeah, we talked about uh, Nocturnal a lot earlier. My next track in my route is connected in various ways to Nocturnal. Um, firstly, um, it's got a similar lineup. Um, it's also the last track on an album, a Blue Note album. It also happens to be a ballad, and it also happens to be written by Chambers. And that track is um, Mirrors by Freddie Hubbard, and it's from his album Breaking Point, which was recorded and released in at the boundaries of hard bop and experimenting with different sounds a lot of weird time signatures in that album some quite far out blowing mm. but never going completely free it's all got a bluesy feeling and beautiful melodies and mm. lyricism it's definitely yeah it's interesting this album was recorded soon after Hubbard left um, Blakey's Jazz Messengers um, a year or two later the, the, the album features Freddie Hubbard's first working band. So it was Hubbard on trumpet. You had James Spaulding on um, the alto saxon flutes, like on Bobby Hutchison's Nocturnal. Um, you've got Ronnie Matthews on piano, uh, Eddie Kahn on bass, and obviously Joe Chambers on drums. Um, and I mean, the group is full of young talent. Interestingly, actually, Hubbard is the, the eldest of the group <laughs> at the time. And Hubbard is only, I think he's 26 yeah. at the time of making this album. Um, and he says in the liner notes, he says... I dig the young guys who are trying to push ahead. These fellows in my group are my own special cats and we're trying to say something a little bit different. Not just because it is different, but because jazz, like the world, has to progress. And it was going back to what we were saying earlier, it's no good if you stay in one place. And you know, he, as a young talent, he realised that obviously that was instilled in him from you know, people like Art Blakey, you know, encouraging these musicians to push the boundaries and create new things and it was an exciting time for them. And it's reflected in the album artwork which has a shattered mirror or pane of glass. Yeah. The words breaking point with an exclamation mark yeah. is shattering previous incarnations of blues and jazz and doing something really fiery and bold. Definitely. I mean, I think if you, if you look at it, it came out in um, 60, 64. And if you think about, you know, what was going on in 1964, you've got John Coltrane's A Love Supreme at the same time. So jazz is really a, a crossroads in a way and starting this really kind of a, a new era is about to start in jazz in terms sure. of uh, the perspective players are taking again what stands out on this track to me is the atmosphere is very reminiscent of uh, Hutchison's Nocturnal 
and that is down to the fact that it's another I think it's another it's another chambers composition um, and it has a very similar almost kind of Sarti-esque atmosphere to it and you get you know he was only 22 at the time he wrote this chambers wow you know it's, it was, it was, you know you, you hear this stuff and you think what am I doing with my life you know you know it's, I'm 29 now I've done that I've, man I killed to make a track like that but it's insane you know the talent of these guys in terms of the, uh, the 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 tone from from Hubbard on this album, what's what's great about this track specifically um, is you you see this more lyrical side of uh, Hubbard's playing, as remarked by Leonard Feather in the liner notes. He says Freddie is at his most lyrical, um, and I mean for me the standout in that it's about two and a half minutes in when Freddie Hubbard takes a solo and he just kind of soars into that really bluesy you know line. It's almost like he takes off, but then just kind of comes back down. It's almost like he's flying in a way. Hubbard solos are the highlight of many a Blue Note track. Maiden Voyage by Herbie Hancock's a good example. Mm, yeah. He just, again, seems to soar. He builds on the groundwork that's been laid by people like Lee Morgan, Clifford Brown, with his own style. Definitely. So much swagger and fuzz in his sound. Definitely. But I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic track. Again, like Nocturnal, a fantastic way to round out an album. And that leads me on to my next step on my route, um, via the connection of another track by Freddie Hubbard, and again, the last track on an album. But this time, um, it's a more upbeat number. Um, it's um, Freddie Hubbard's track Crisis from Ready for Freddie, recorded in 1961 and released in 1962 on Blue Note, wouldn't you know? <laughs> Crisis um, from the album Ready for Freddy. Um, the lineup on that album, you see Hubbard on trumpet, uh, you've got Wayne Shorter on tenor sax, Bernard McKinney on euphonium, interestingly. Very quite, interesting. Yeah, a unique instrument in jazz, quite rare. Um, you don't see it on a lot of records at all, traditionally more of a brass band instrument. Don't hear them solo very much. No, no, so that's particularly unique. Um, and then you've got. Um, the trio of McCoy Tyner on piano, Art Davis on bass, and Elvin Jones on drums. Um, and for anyone who's familiar with John Coltrane, obviously McCoy Tyner and Elvin Jones um, formed part of the great Coltrane Quartet. Art Davis was also a key player um, in Coltrane's uh, New York recordings, early New York recordings um, in the early 60s. And Hubbard remarks actually in the liner notes how he's influenced by Coltrane, specifically the new ground that Coltrane was um, was covering in the early 60s from the, the move to more modal compositions um, and how it opened up the potential for uh, more interesting solos and not being so bound by changes and things like that. Mm. So interesting. yeah, Hubbard as a young as a young man is obviously very influenced by that and that's reflected by the lineup on the album. Wayne Shorter was very influenced by the train as well and mm. you can hear the sheets of sound style playing in his solos mm. 
at this point in his career, prior to joining the Miles Davis quintet, is taking these train-like flights and these quite startling runs. He'd get more introspective in the Miles Davis group. Well, you hear that you 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 hear that kind of playing on mosaic. You know, from from Wayne Shorter when he takes his solo, there's that sudden kind of like yeah, energy screams. that comes through, and it feels it feels very much Coltrane esque. Yeah, you know, and you can tell he was heavily influenced by him. I mean, interestingly, this track again—it's the last track on the album, and it was written by Hubbard this time, and it really highlights his skill as a young composer. Mm. Um, it's the first iteration of this tune, um, Crisis. He talks a lot about obviously not wanting to be boxed in with things. He wants to keep pushing. You know, as he said. You know, when we were talking about mirrors, he wants to keep the music progressing. You know, he wants to cover new ground. He wants to make new things. He wants to contribute something new. Um, and you can definitely, you know, obviously, uh, mirrors was recorded a tiny bit later, but you can hear already that on Crisis, he's got, you know, he's changing up his band. He's trying new things. Um, and I mean, the the track is quite long, but it's great how everyone has a, everyone has a has a chance to solo on it. It's a great way to see out the album. Um, a euphonium solo yeah and again uh, it leads me on to uh, to my final track um, you also see a rendition of Crisis um, on Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers album Mosaic the final track on the album so it's quite interesting how you've picked Mosaic which is the first track and with all my roots all been going last track last track last track yeah and then you finally get to Mosaic which is the first track of an album yet the connection is again through the last track the Ready for Freddy version of Crisis was recorded first, but the Mosaic one was released first. And it's interesting that the instrumentation is the same apart from a trombone on Mosaic instead of the euphonium. Because mm. they fulfil a similar function. And like I was saying, having those three horns in the Jazz Messengers, particularly in a track like Crisis, you can really hear how... Uh, I think Wayne Shorter is the arranger mm. for Jazz Messages, is able to arrange really nice heads with the three horns mm. playing in harmony. And definitely, I think that was the reason as well, you know, back on, uh, well, we were saying on uh, Crisis, on Ready for Freddy, um, he used a euphonium apparently because of the unique sound of the euphonium, how it complemented the other instruments sure. in the lineup. So it was a very intentional intentional choice by Freddie Hubbard. Interestingly as well, um, Reggie Workman, um, who we heard on Patterns by Bobby Hutchison, um, played in the Jazz Messages around the same time. Yes. So all these players, you know, they were crossing over to each other's group. So it's interesting, that's another link. You know, we could have just gone direct from Nocturnal yeah. to uh, to Mosaic via Reggie Workman, but it's a tiny bit tenuous. That's the thing, once you're in Bruno, you can You can almost, everything is like one or two steps away. Yeah. But obviously we're trying to, you know, cover music that we like and obviously get a nice breadth of, talk about interesting tracks, otherwise we wouldn't have a podcast. <laughs> but um, but it, yeah, it's, really really It's cool as well how Mosaic opens Mosaic and Crisis closes it because yeah. you go from this just incendiary, lightning fast opener yeah. to something much more harmonious, and definitely a lot more subdued not in yeah. a ballad way but it ticks along and it's Swings. everyone doing their thing yeah exactly it's a lovely kind of laid back laid back kind of blue note number as opposed to that bombastic hard yeah. bop where just everyone is going 110 percent in fact crisis is almost a better name for mosaic and vice versa <laughs> well this is the thing i was thinking as well it feels like they got their names wrong <laughs> maybe there was a problem with the track listing or something like that and crisis was always meant to be 
you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird one, isn't it? Because when you look at it, you think, crisis, you know, <laughs> oh my God, you know, but actually the track is not, yeah, not quite what you think it was. Cedar Walton called Mosaic that deliberately because he was thinking of it as layering different sounds on top of each other, building from the layers on top of each other. I think he was approaching it like an abstract composition. Well, it's funny though, the, the connection as well there. I mean, you could say it's a bit tenuous, but you look at Bobby Hutchinson, we're looking at patterns. So we're going from patterns to mosaic and the two almost have a, sure. a complementary nature in that sense. It, it feels that with patterns, it's very much like almost kind of like lines snaking in and out of each other, like smoke or kind of watercolors bleeding into each other. And that's the, the, the feel of that kind of Hutchinson ballad. Whereas when you look at something like mosaic, feels much more angular yeah. and a much more like this, this this almost kind of puzzle that's been kind of locked together but it's got all these angular bits sticking out and it's kind of furiously kind of rotating so two very kind of um, different approaches to composition but yeah almost kind of thematically linked yeah and that's that sort of ties into what we were saying last time about the aesthetic of Blue Note in general these very pronounced uh, single word titles reflecting the artwork you know, mosaic patterns. There's just something so elegant about the whole operation. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, really, yeah. really good route, man. I, I really liked yours and I'm so glad we didn't overlap. Yeah. I was worried that we were going to take the, both the kind of the predictable line. I really enjoyed your Stepping Stones, particularly Breaking Point, which if anyone's not heard, I mean, maybe not the best place to start with Freddie Hubbard, it's but. definitely, it's not, it's, yeah, it's not necessarily the entry there, but it's, it, it's a really interesting album. It's that lineup, it's that, you, you, with people like, it's the Spalding, Spalding Chambers combo. What I particularly like as well is that on uh, Bobby Hutchison's uh, patterns, and those, you know, a lot of those Hutchison records, he was playing with players that weren't necessarily, they were flirting with um, more kind of avant-garde, free approaches. So players that are more, not necessarily your A-lister blue note players sometimes, the slight, slight more kind of the, the underappreciated players and also players that were on the fringes of blue note, people like Stanley Cowell and Charles Tolliver that then went off and did their own thing mm. um, with Strata East and did the whole independent label um, black jazz thing in the 70s. And I think that's interesting. You know, Bobby Hutchinson is one of those artists that, that kind of um, straddles the mainstream and also the more esoteric and underground stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's what I love about him as a player. And I think that's reflected also in his compositions, the way he didn't change up his sound. Yeah. He didn't change up commercially for anyone, really. Um, I mean, obviously, maybe you could say some of his later stuff in the late 70s and early 80s on Blue Note, but even then it still has a, still has a kind of honesty that feels his own. And uh, I think that's what makes him such a, such a attractive player and a favourite. And if you want to see him... Uh, in a dressing gown, he's featured in the film Around Midnight, the 1986 French drama, which stars Dexter Gordon, features all sorts of great musicians from this era, including Herbie Hancock, Wade Shorter, Freddie Hubbard. Uh, Herbie Hancock won an Oscar for his score for the film. Oh, wow. But Dexter Gordon, interestingly, was nominated for Best Actor. Okay. Even though he's not an actor... He's a Musician. saxophonist, <laughs> but he's really good in it. I mean, he's essentially playing himself, a bit like when Eminem was in 8 Mile. It was really good. It's like, yeah, it's because he's Eminem. Yeah, and it's Being also his story kind of yeah. thing, so it, it works. Based loosely on the lives of Lester Young and Bud Powell, 
this kind of hybrid figure, tragic uh, hero of the jazz scene. So that brings us to the end of this second episode of Roots, a Jazz Impressions podcast. Um, be sure to check out the blog, uh, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Also hit the subscribe button. We're on uh, Spotify, Apple Music, uh, Overcast, um, SoundCloud as well, if you use that. Um, explore some of our curated playlists over on the Jazz Impressions Spotify as well, um, the links to which can be found on our website. We're here, we're talking jazz every two weeks. Um, if you enjoyed it, let us know. Um, we'd love to hear if there are any other musical routes uh, we could have taken. Again, we always love to hear, you know, what other if there were some other connections that you would have taken and, you know, things that we may have missed or tracks that we haven't heard. So, um, yeah, let us know in the comments over on Instagram or Twitter. Um, and, yeah, we like a challenge. So, uh, yeah, if you've got any other ideas of tracks we could feature in the future, anything you'd like us to talk on, um, let us know about that as well. So join us again for another round of musical ping pong. And finally, what do you call a vegetarian bassist? I don't know, what do you call a vegetarian bassist? Veggie workman. That was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so bad. <laughs>